This morning we read Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. This is the Word of God. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth, which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and in oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
We read that far in God's holy word, and this morning we turn to the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 37. Lord's Day 37. May we then swear religiously by the name of God, yes, either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's word and therefore was justly used by the saints both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures, no, for a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart, that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely, which honor is due to no creature. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I suppose it would be easy for us this morning to look at this Lord's Day and perhaps even consider it a wasted Lord's Day. Lord's Day where we might ask, why should we even enter into this? This really doesn't seem a problem for us. What does it really have to do with the more important aspects of the law of God? And perhaps even ask ourselves, what does it really have to do with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that would be a mistake on our part. Our fathers were really not mistaken by separating out this particular subject to consider in a separate Lord's Day the only commandment where this is done. All the rest of the commandments are treated in a single Lord's Day. And for good reason, this was separated out for a special Lord's Day. And it wasn't only because the truth of swearing an oath or oath-taking was really a matter of importance at the time of the Reformation from two really different directions, both of which are addressed in this Lord's Day. Our fathers have in mind the error on the one hand of the Roman Catholics, which is referenced, which were allowing, promoting the swearing of oaths by saints and even other creatures, something that our Lord Jesus also encountered and rebuked in the church. Members were swearing oaths by things, creatures other than God, and that's offensive to God, that's blasphemous, and we saw in the previous Lord's Day what the Lord thinks of blasphemy, so it's addressed. On the other hand, there were Protestants, the Anabaptists, who forbid the swearing of oaths. They overreacted to the sinful oath-taking that was going on and forbid oaths. And they forbid oaths in part because most oaths were being taken in a court of law and the Anabaptists refused to acknowledge the proper sphere of government to rule over the lives of Christians. Christians were, in the mind of the Anabaptists, to be freed from that. Being members of the church freed us 
from any oversight or submission to the government, and beside they held a notion that government was corrupt simply because it was an earthly institution. Earthly institutions are inherently corrupt. So this is brought out, but there's more at stake here, of course. We hinted at that when we said it's a matter of blasphemy. It's really a matter then that pertains to the name of God and who and what God is, and that's really what must govern us and what we must consider too when we consider this Lord's Day. Not simply look at it as a commandment, an external law that is to be followed uh, somehow with us, but for us it's important to recognize the relationship of this commandment to our God. And the text that we considered this morning does that. In the text that we considered, we see not only a ground for the, legitimately of, the legitimacy of oath-taking. In the passage that we read, the argument is to be made that if God swears an oath, and God even finds it necessary to swear an oath, then certainly we sinners should find it necessary, and when necessary, may similarly take an oath. And there's other support in Scripture, as the Catechism points out, also. But even more than that, we see here why we must understand proper oath-taking, because proper oath-taking is in the name of God. And in this passage where God Himself swears, we see the real principle behind it, which is that God is an immutable God. His counsel is immutable. His word is immutable. That is, it is sure. And it's upon that that our faith rests. Our faith rests not merely in the promise of God as such, but in the fact that that promise is immutable. And even being immutable is something that God even swore in oath with regard to that promise. So, we consider this morning, this Lord's Day, under the theme, swearing by the name of Him who swears, or the swearing by the name of God who swears. And we notice in the first place the requirement of swearing. And secondly, the necessity of it. What's behind the requirement? What, what underlies the commandment? What are the principles? And lastly, the possibility and there I could easily have entitled it the certainty. The Lord's Day here addresses, of course, swearing an oath, confirming the truth of something that one is saying or testifying to by appeal to God, by appealing to God to judge the truth. And as the Catechism puts it, judging in such a way that if I'm lying, then I understand God will punish me for that lie. And the oath has as its purpose that others might have some assurance that what you are saying is true. When the Reformed faith teaches or preaches on the issue of oath-taking, it is important for us to notice that it does so 
in connection with the third commandment, not merely the ninth, that itself ought to teach us something, something we'll talk about soon, which is that the view of the Reformed faith on the basis of Holy Scripture is that oath-taking is something that has to do with God, first and foremost. What we say about the oath, whether we may or may not take an oath, and who or what we swear by, all of that is important and significant because it concerns God's name. It's not merely a matter of lying. It's not simply and only exclusively a matter of the ninth commandment. But it is a matter of the ninth commandment that exactly because one is taking an oath of some kind, whether it be a false oath based on creatures or with appeal to things or a lawful oath, it says something about the name of God. The instruction of the Catechism is basically this, that even if I would take an oath and swear by something other than God, and let's suppose that others would even accept that oath, which is itself foolish. No human being should in his right mind, one would think, accept the oath of another that is in the name of any other creature or even a saint that is one that's not based on the name of God. What we believe and upon whom that oath rests makes all the difference in the world. I've um, often given similar advice to young people who are thinking about marrying and perhaps one of them comes from a church that believes that divorce and remarriage they might have some restrictions on whether or when one may divorce or remarriage but it is allowed maybe they don't allow it of the elders or allow it of the minister, but they allow it in the pew. Well, that should make one think long and hard about whether they want to marry such a person. The issue isn't simply whether I can marry someone and go to their church who believes this and we believe falsely and wrongly. The Bible does not teach that it's permitted to divorce and remarry, but it's also a very practical issue, very closely related to this, and the practical issue is this. Does this person believe that it's okay under certain circumstances to break a vow or an oath? Because in marriage, one swears by the name of God and before God and witnesses that I will be faithful to you till death do us part. Do you believe that or not? And the warning that I give and you should give to any couple that would consider that that's okay would be you should not then get married 
Why in the world would you trust the word of someone who believes it's okay to break that word? In the end, it really isn't about what a church believes or what elders or a minister in that church believes. It's about what the person you're marrying believes. And I would warn anyone here, certainly, about that. Why in the world would you ever accept the word of someone who's about to promise to love you in sickness and in health for better or for worse? But I can break that oath. I can even break that oath with the approval of my consistory in church. That would be foolish. So also it would be foolish to accept any oath that's not in the name of God. Well, with that in mind, you have to see that the Lord's Day here sets forth really two requirements for a lawful oath. In other words, to put it negatively, the Holy Scriptures, the Catechism, the Catechism on the light of those Holy Scriptures teaches that it is not lawful to just take any oath. There are oaths that are unlawful, that are wrong, that are sinful on the very face of it. It would be wrong or sinful, certainly, our fathers would say, to take an oath that you have no intention of keeping, to take an oath, as it were, with crossed fingers, to promise to do something that you know you aren't able to do or have no intention of doing. Certainly, that would be an unlawful oath. That would be a lie. That would be a terrible thing to do to another person. Certainly, our fathers would say, in the light of the catechism here, that there are many other things that are oaths. And the government considers them oaths. When we sign certain documents, then whether it's in the small print or not, it's understood that by your signature, you are promising to do certain things under certain penalties. And therefore, if you do not carry out your word, those penalties are invoked, and you should accept them. But our fathers say there's basically only two requirements, two things that one needs to consider about whether or not one should swear an oath. And what is a lawful oath? The first is very plain and follows from what I already said, which is a lawful oath is one only sworn in the name of God. The idea of that, of course, is the one true God. An oath sworn in the name of any other God certainly is an unlawful oath. But so also then is any oath that's sworn by anything, any one other than God. In fact, the Catechism's position on the basis of the Word of God is that to swear an oath by any other creature, any other thing other than God. In fact, for a believer, really to even say, I swear, without 
having in his own heart and mind, and I swear by the name of my God, he need not have to say that, but at the same time, if we're going to swear, if we're going to sign, if we're going to speak, whether that be a marriage document or a marriage vow or it be a business document, the idea for the Christian is, I will not agree to do this, or I will not say this without understanding that I'm calling upon the name of my God to witness this here signature and to witness my words. That's the first requirement, very simple. And it's why when oaths are taken among Christians, or at least Christians who believe in the same God, and let's recognize that not all Christians believe in the same God. They might go by the name Jesus, and they might go by the name Jehovah and many other things. But there are many Christians who believe God, in fact, does break his vows and his oaths. One of the grounds that's given for why I may break my marriage vows, really, is grounded in how they view God. If you dig deep, you will find that often where it's tolerated or allowed that you may, under certain circumstances, break your marriage vows and even remarry another is grounded in the fact that the husband or wife didn't fulfill the conditions of that contract, that bargain, that deal that they hammered out, which is their first mistake. That's not marriage. It's not what marriage is. But even worse, they say, well, that's how God deals with us. We have a God who promises many things that He does not fulfill. The fulfillment of them depends upon you. The fulfillment of them depends on you holding up your end of the bargain, the deal, the contract. And when you don't, God no longer has to keep His promises. He, he, he gets a pass. Do you not understand that? It's not simply that you have churches and ministers and others who allow for divorce or remarriage. It's, it's, that just doesn't happen, but that's grounded in theology. That's why churches and people like that are insistent that they have to allow it. Because that's the God that they call upon in marriage. That's their God. Their God is really, in my opinion and the Scripture's opinion, an idol God. God who really doesn't do anything. You may speak, but you can't trust what he's going to say. Well, take a look at Hebrews 6 and examine that word. Now there's another requirement. An oath may only be taken in the name of God. And the other is that it has to be for the advantage and welfare of my neighbor. That is, when one takes an oath and swears in the name of God and promises to do certain things, it's doing it for the, really the neighbor's sake. I'm not doing it for my sake, which is another giveaway of an unlawful oath. There are people who take oaths, who swear, who say, I swear a lot. Seems like they're saying that all the time. I swear, I swear, I swear. Well, usually when people are doing that, they're lying. 
and they have a wrong view of the oath, which is, I take the oath for my sake, so that I, who you really can't trust, and I know you can't really trust me because I'm usually telling all kinds of tall tales, I have to signal to you somehow that what I'm saying now here is really the truth. Well, that's not the child of God. The child of God doesn't have to do that. He shouldn't be doing that. This is what Jesus said when he said, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. When you deal with one another in the church and even in the world, be an honest person. Be a person that doesn't have to say, I swear all the time. Be the kind of person that when you say, I'm going to do this, I will do it. Even though I never swore, even though I never took a vow, never took an oath, you need to know I'm the kind of person, if I promise to do something, I will carry it out. I'll carry it out even to my hurt. Even if you hurt me. Because that's, that's again the kind of God that I worship, that I serve. I serve a God and I worship a God whose word is true. He speaks the truth. He doesn't have to swear all the time. He has, but he doesn't have to do that. And he doesn't do it really for his own sake. So, why then swear an oath? And the answer is, well, because it might be necessary for the neighbor's sake. You see, we all live in a world, and here we tread a little ground that's coming up, but we live in a world of sin and sinners and liars. And we all know that I really can't tell the truth in many instances. That business and commerce, as well as dealings with one another, relies upon our words and in the immortal words of Scripture, every man is a liar. We all lie. We're all prone not to tell the truth, especially when it's to my hurt. When telling a falsehood or a lie is to my advantage, then we're prone to do that. Well, our fathers recognize that, and they say there's a requirement. And the requirement is that you have to confirm fidelity and truth and for the safety of our neighbor. Fathers recognize there's times when for the safety of the neighbor, you might have to swear. Their own well-being depends upon it. They're going to lay their life on the line or they're going to make commitments that could create great harm and hurt to them. And they have to rely upon your word. And in such instances, it's appropriate, it's even right for a child of God to say, I swear to do that. I swear before God, in the name of God, in my God, that I will do that. It's really what goes on in marriage. Such is the commitment of marriage. That marriage is founded on an oath like that. That's not the marriage. And it's not a business deal. But such is the commitment that each is required of each of the spouses, each of the individuals that we we, we swear an oath, an oath before God. Our marriage vows invoke the name of God. There's many other instances, too, that that might be brought up. Or to confirm the fidelity and truth of something. And then notice, to the glory of God. Just notice that little line there. It's giving the requirement for a lawful oath, but then it reminds us, even when it's about truth and fidelity, it's not always about ourselves. Certainly there's instances 
or you have contradictory opinions or contradictory evidence or charges and we really don't know who's telling the truth. What's the truth? And the Reformed faith says it's it's okay to make someone swear an oath. And as the book of Hebrews chapter 6 said that that should be the end of the matter, should be the end of strife. That when you accuse a brother or a sister of something and there's no way to verify the truth of the matter, there's no other eyewitnesses, there's no other way to really tell, then it's appropriate for that individual to say, I swear an oath before God that what I'm telling you is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But even then, notice in that line, it's to the glory of God. And you say, well, how can that be? And the answer is, number one, you have hopefully an act of faith there, a faith in God, that someone isn't just saying this. We know that that's possible. But and notice also it's to the glory of God because one is appealing to God. One is looking to Him. And not only that, but God is glorified when there's peace. It's glorifying to God when a brother or a sister is willing to take an oath and say, that's good enough for me. I have strong feelings about this, and I'm pretty certain I know what I saw, or I, this is how I see it, but I'll accept. I'll accept that because you, you made that oath in the name of my God, and God is pleased by that. He would not, of course, be pleased if there is a lie. And here we need to remind one another of the absolute horror, then, of lying under oath. I mention this because this is also frequently done. It is not unusual at all. Say if there's an individual who has been accused of, say, sexual abuse, that they will admit only what they have to admit. This is well known. You can write a book on this. Only what they know you know and nothing more. And almost always, they will swear an oath. They'll be willing, I'll swear an oath that there's no other victims. There's no other people that I've touched. There's nothing I've done. They'll even take that oath in the name of God. And they're lying. And you find out later they're lying. And then that individual needs to be told and reminded in no uncertain terms that you have blasphemed the name of God. You violated not only the ninth commandment, but the third commandment. And we're going to add that to the list of things that you must be confessed and you must be sorry for. But that's on them. That's on them. Now, why is all this? Well, the first and foremost thing ought to be we realize that all of this, what's allowed and what's not allowed, why there is this, is due to God Himself, the name of God. It is remarkable when you think about it how our fathers saw that oath-taking and swearing is really all about the name of God. It's not about the other things that I'm going to mention right things, good things, but first and foremost, if you ask, well, why is all this necessary? Why even preach a sermon on it? What, isn't this all overdone? And the answer is no. 
No, what we need to realize is that this is a rather large area of our life, truth-telling, Ninth Commandment things. And even though they're Ninth Commandment matters, that is, matters that have to do with the neighbor, the second table of the law, loving or hating our neighbor, it concerns God. See the link between the two tables right there? Right here, right here in this spot is where we have a link between the first and second tables. In other words, proof that what the Apostle John said is true, that a man who says he loves God but hates his neighbor or vice versa is lying. So that if I lie to my neighbor, I am, in effect, blaspheming the name of God. Now, especially what we need to highlight here is who and what God is. And if there is a place that teaches us anything about God, it is right here. Of course, we've learned many things about God already in the first two commandments, but let's look at the third one now, and let's look at it in the light of Hebrews 6. Does it burn in our soul? Does it live in our consciousness that if there's one thing we need to know about God and we may not compromise and we may not give up on, which sadly is done, exactly why divorce and remarriage is rampant, even in Reformed churches, and why things like a conditional covenant and the free offer of the gospel could be taught. Our God is a God who absolutely tells the truth, nothing but the truth. And He never, ever lies. His Word is immutable. It never changes. And if God says He's going to do something, He will do it. That is what's taught in Hebrews 6. And it's even taught in a very shocking context, which is the apostasy of someone who tasted of God's goodness and even, even had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And you read that and say, well, how, how is that possible? Is salvation conditional after all? And it leads right into the text, which is what ought to receive the focus, which is no, 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 no. Who is the God we believe in? Who is the God we believe in? Who is the God that Abraham believed in? Let's talk about Abraham's faith. What was it in? How was it that Abraham persevered? Notice, after he persevered. How was it that he did that How, and didn't fall away? Was it Abraham was a good guy and stronger than most of us and applied himself really hard? No, not really, the apostle says. It's because God swore. God swore that he would be his God and that he would be the people of God. Surely, see that word surely? Surely, that was an oath. The author of Hebrews says that was the oath of God. Now the word of God was good enough. It was sure, it was certain. Abraham should be able just to believe that word. And this is why there can't be any such thing as conditions in the covenant or well, where my salvation or perseverance is anyway dependent upon me, but rather my perseverance is dependent upon God. When God says, I promise to do this, it's done. It's a certainty. It cannot fail. It cannot be the case that God promises to save someone and they're not saved. It cannot be that God assures someone that He will be their God and they will be a member of God and then they're not. That's not possible. And so much is it not possible that God Himself swears an oath 
And that's not really because God needs to confirm that for Himself, but for us. It should be enough where we say, God has spoken. That's the end of the matter. That's the end of the matter. But God knows us, knows us as sinners, knows how we're prone to think and act and behave and teach. And God says, I'm going to swear an oath. I have an immutable promise because I'm an immutable God. What goes out of my mouth never returns to me empty, never returns frustrated. If I say I love you and I will save you, then that's what's going to happen. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how great is your sin. In fact, in the light of the passage, we may even say it doesn't matter if you've fallen away for a time. God's word is sure. But he confirms it with an oath that's just as immutable. So that's the first ground for the whole commandment, who and what God is. And it's why if we don't have that kind of God, you can be certain that soon we'll have a church and people who can swear oaths that they don't intend to keep, can break their marriage vows, can break their business contracts. Begins with who and what God is and the God that you serve. Second reason for the commandment is one alluded to, which is, well, we're sinful. We're, we're sinners. We're, and we're only creatures. We don't know the heart. We don't, we don't know. But remember, too, we're also believers. It's not just that we're sinful and we're capable of sinning, but for members of the church, for Christians, it, it's also a matter of, I receive you at your word. You, you say you're a believer. You say you confess the same God I do. And therefore, when you swear by the name of that God, I, I shall receive that too. That's part of it. Now, if there's reason for doubt in that regard, then you must and should deal with that. One of the reasons why it's so awful when we lie, especially under oath, then there is no real ground to trust that individual's oath subsequently, and they need to know that. It is very, very hard and difficult to regain trust that's lost that way, and that's not really our fault. It's not others' fault. It's the fault of the individual who knowingly lied, especially under oath, that's God's judgment upon that lie, that no one trusts them from then on. But that doesn't even necessarily have to be either. God can correct and change that too, according to His promises and word. There's another aspect of this command too. I'll be brief with regard to this. It's not the focus of the sermon so much, but you have to realize it concerned the Anabaptists, which is, one of the requirements for a lawful oath is in the court of law before the government, in the world of business and contracts. And so underlying the article is the reality that we believe the government is a legitimate institution, even when it sins, even when it's wicked, and that business contracts and commerce are legitimate aspects of this earthly life that we have to and may engage in, even using oaths and swearing. That's the truth that's taught here underlying this. It's not the case that because we are members of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and that our home is in heaven, that we really come from heaven, that we are cut off from this earth. No, we live this earth in our flesh. That's the, where the previous thing, sin, came in. And exactly because of that, the government has a rightful authority and rule over my flesh, over my possessions, and over my speech, and especially, say, a court of law. And right here, our fathers recognize it. They say, they say to us, that's a legitimate requirement. If the government asks you to swear that what you put on your tax returns is the truth, then you better do that, and you better do that before God or in a court of law. But lastly, now I want to talk about the possibility, or as I said, the certainty of it. We, we look at a commandment like this, and when we look at the rigors of it and what God requires, and we know our own lying and deceitful hearts, we might say to ourselves, well, now, is that even possible? May I now, and should I now, just dismiss this commandment and say, well, after all, it's the law of God, and we're not required to keep the law of God because after now I'm under grace, and, and so whether I lie or don't lie, or I swear by the name of God or not, really in the end, does it matter? And the answer is no, it doesn't. The truth of the Holy Gospel is that lawful oath swearing in the name of God that we keep even to our hurt is not only a real possibility for the child of God, but is a certainty. So much so that if you have a person that habitually breaks their oaths or will not repent from it, they must be excommunicated, removed from the kingdom. God requires that we live this way. But even more so, the Holy Gospel is God not only requires it, but He works it in us. Why? Well, let's go back to Hebrews 6 once. It's a possibility not only, but a certainty because God has promised it. God has promised that me being your God and you being my people means that you will live like me. You will act like me. You will speak like me. I promise it. I also will punish I punish with everlasting fire and damnation the liar, and especially the liar who takes my name, who dares take my name to lie to the hurt and wound of his neighbor. I promise that too. God not only promises salvation, but He promises damnation to those who break His commandments. But do you not see again the God who we serve and worship. This is the God whose word is so certain and sure that when it comes to the punishment of the liar, of the oath breaker, he laid all those sins on his own son and poured all that condemnation as he promised out on him. And exactly because of that, God can keep, as it were, his other word which is to be our God, and we be His people. And if you ask what it means that we be His people, it means that we indeed act and think and behave as He does. God not only requires it and insists on it, but He works it. He works it. Why? Because He has 
promised it. Then you understand that's exactly the God then whose name we invoke. Think about it. When you take an oath and you swear by the name of God, what God is it whose name you swear by? If it's the God I just described, if it's the God I just described, then the work of the Spirit will be, I, I can't lie against that God. I can't hurt that God. And if I, if I do, I'm sorry for that. That is the Word of God of Holy Scripture. That's the Word of God's promise. That's the Word that He brings to us this morning. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy Word of promises, Thy promises upon which all of our faith depends, upon which our faith rests, Thy Word which never changes and is immutable, and a Word that was confirmed with an oath. Surely, give us faith to believe, O Lord, in Thee our God, thus described. And then also give us grace to so live as thy people, to be sorry, to turn from our lies, our false oaths, and swear only in thy name to the advantage of one another and especially to the glory of thy name, which name we represent. In, name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.